as I said before, we are going to finish up our study of the prophet Elijah this morning. We've been working on it now for, for many, many months. We are in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. I want to begin this morning with a little bit of a theology lesson. <laughs> uh, you probably have never heard about this because this took place a long time ago. But in 1920, thousands of people amassed in uh, uh, August town, Jamaica, on New Year's Eve day for a purpose. And that was to watch Alexander Bedward fly to heaven. Let me just tell you a little bit about, uh, about Alexander. He was born in an impoverished family in 1848, so this was many, many years ago. None of us remember 1848, that's for certain. He worked as a laborer during the building of the Panama Canal under very deplorable conditions. But eventually he became an evangelist in Jamaica, and they say he had a, he had a great uh, charisma about him. He was he's someone that really was like a pick people magnet that attracted people to himself. He also had an acute sense of the theatrical. They also say that he had unshakable faith in his own righteousness, that he was one of those people that we call perfectionists. He really believed that he had attained perfect righteousness of his own in life. In 1919, he became convinced that he was being called by God to fly to heaven. They say that he arrived uh, at the place that was supposed to take place early in the morning on the day it was supposed to take place. He took his chariot with simply a chair and he balanced it up in a tree. He then pronounced that his ascension would take place at 10 a.m. Needless to say, 10 a.m. came and went, and he still sat in the tree. So he did as false prophets very often do. He adjusted his time frame and said that he was mistaken and that it's supposed to be at 10 p.m. that he was going to be taken from the tree up into heaven. He came down out of the tree at 10 p.m. that night and went home. In 1930, he died in a mental institution. Sad story, isn't it? Do you understand that there are a lot of people out there in the world that would look upon this story that we're talking about here, this narrative about Elijah in the same sense? They would think that it's untrue. They would think that it's a lie. And they would feel sorry for you for believing in it and trusting in things such as this. I want to make something clear here this morning because we know that Elijah was an Old Testament saint, right? How is it being an Old Testament saint that God delivered him directly from death and carried him to heaven. How is that possible? We know this. We know that the key to heaven is perfect righteousness. 
We also know that Elijah, the great man of God that he was, he was not a perfect man, that he was a sinner just like every other person since Adam and Eve, including Adam and Eve. It's mystery to so many people. And let me tell you, I don't have the answer to that question. You may wonder how in the world this was possible. The only thing we know is God did it, and we also know that God can do what God wants to do. He never has to explain it to you and to me. But we know this, that the only way that Elijah made it into heaven was through perfect righteousness. And we know he did not have it, and there's only one way to have it, and that is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imparted to him. And you and I need to understand something. That is, all of the Old Testament saints were saved by the same blood of Jesus that you and I are. The only difference is we live on the other side of things. I mean, what would you believe if someone began to tell you this story that Alexander Bedward had begun to tell people? What would you kids think? If someone told you that they were going to sit in a chair up in the tree and all of a sudden God was going to whoosh them up to heaven, what do you think, Gloria? You wouldn't believe it. And no one else in this room would probably believe it either. But we know this. We know that at this point that a chariot of fire has swooped down from heaven and picked up Elijah and taken him directly to heaven. And Elisha is left there alone. He was there one moment, and then he was suddenly gone. Elisha sees this with his own eyes, so he has no doubt that this is what's happened. This is not some story that someone's related to him. He's seen it himself. Just remember that Elijah, when he was at Mount Sinai, after he had run from Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, who was trying to kill him, And he was there on the mountain of of God, and God spoke to him, and he commissioned him. And one of the things he commissioned him to do at that point was to go and find, seek out Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and to anoint him as prophet after himself. And remember, he did that, and he he found him plowing in his father's field. And at that point, Elijah had taken his mantle, this mantle that we talked about last week, where he slapped the water and the water parted. The same mantle we would presume, or if you don't understand what a mantle is, it's just a cloak. It's like a, a, an outer covering over uh, your regular clothes. And remember how Elisha had dropped everything, how he took the instruments he was using to plow and, all, and the animals, and he sacrificed those and, and, and all of that. And he left his family, he left his homestead behind, and he became a disciple of Elijah. There's a great sense in which he is, Elijah is Elisha's, Spiritual father. We said a couple of weeks ago maybe that, uh, that, that Elisha possibly is the, the biggest example of, of a son that Elijah ever had. Because so we have no reason to believe he was ever married. We have no reason to believe he ever had any physical children. But obviously he had lots of spiritual children, but probably the one of greatest 
importance, in a sense, would be Elisha. Elisha has reached a very pivotal point in his life. Nothing for him would be quite the same after this. You see, he was disciple, he was the disciple before, and now he will be the discipler. He was the prophet in training before, and now he will be the prophet. Elijah's message was very unpopular in his day, and the same will be true for Elisha. Neither of them had lots of friends. They had lots of enemies. For the time being, at least in a sense, God's work for Elijah is complete. His work on earth for him is complete. But Elijah's just be, Elisha's just beginning. Verse 12 in chapter 2. And seeing this, Elisha cried out in great distress, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his, its horsemen. And he did not see him anymore. Then he took hold of his clothes and tore them into two pieces. We all know what it's like to lose a dear one. Someone that we were close to, someone that we've loved, someone that maybe we had walks with and talks with just like these two guys must have had on a regular basis. We all know what it's like for, for voids to be create, created in our lives when very significant people to us are passed from this world. We need to understand some things here. And one of those is this, is, is Elisha is said to here to cry, cry out in great distress. In other words, to cry out in great anguish. His heart was torn. His heart, it wasn't just his clothes. You need to understand this. Rending of your clothes was supposed to be a demonstration of what was going on inside of you. And so when he ripped his clothes to tatters, it was, it was symbolizing the tearing of his own heart inwardly. We know what that's like. We see Elisha here demonstrating his grief in the typical Jewish ways. If you, if you know much about Jewish people, you will see that grief is expressed very much openly in two particular ways. One is visual, and the other one is with sound, audible. And you see Elisha grieving his loss in both of those ways now my closest experience to this, I've shared this with you before, was when we were in Uganda and we were sitting at the, the motel, hotel we were staying. I have motels there. I have hotels there. We were staying at this inn one night and we were, we were eating dinner. We were getting ready to eat dinner. We were sitting at the table and we started hearing this weird noise off in the distance. And, and you know, here we are in Africa and we're speculating. must be some kind of flock of birds, some kind of birds that we're not familiar with. And whatever, it was this eerie sound that just went on and on and on and on. And you could tell it was more than one voice. It was coming from perhaps lots of birds, like a flock of birds. So we asked the waiter, what is going on here? And what the story told us was this, is there was a road that went down behind the inn. 
And early that day, there had been a young man murdered on the road by bandits. And the sound that we heard was the mourning of his family, of his friends, of the community for this young man. And let me tell you, it was eerie. It was almost scary. As Americans, in particular, it's true for men, I think, we have the idea that we're supposed to always keep our emotions in. As a matter of fact, most of the men in this room probably grew up hearing things like, boys don't cry. Men don't cry. But let me tell you something. Men need to cry. Men sometimes very desperately need to cry. There are times when I need to cry, guys, and I cannot do it. Because I have, it's been ingrained in me my whole life. I'm not just talking about my family. I'm talking about the culture did the same thing. That we're not supposed to cry. That we're not supposed to grieve. But let me tell you something. There's times when the human heart has to grieve and it will burst if it doesn't. What kind of condolences could anyone possibly give to Ben and Hannah Schmidt this morning? I mean, what kind of things do you think that they've heard? Well, let me tell you, I hope they've heard people telling them you need to grieve, you must grieve, you've got to let it out, don't hold it in. He's mourning, big time, and that's okay. Sometimes people think things like mourning are, are, are not really giving much consideration to the sovereignty of God in the whole situation. We understand this. We understand there's a sovereign God, and he had everything to do with that little baby being conceived and that baby being born and that baby dying after a day. If he doesn't have anything to do with it, then he's not sovereign. You need to understand that. There are some things that the human heart just simply cannot comprehend, just simply cannot understand, but it comes down to this. There's a question that has to be asked, and the question is this is even when you don't have all the answers, even when you don't know what to say, even when your heart has been rendered in two, can you trust God? Can you trust the Lord with the very most precious things in your life, the very most precious things in your heart? Can you do that? I alluded to this before, and that is people always think that ministers are supposed to have answers to every single question. And I think sometimes ministers almost encourage people to believe that. But I can tell you right now that when I see Ben and Hannah, I don't have a clue what I'm going to say. And I really hope it's something that helps and not something that hurts and makes the situation worse. 
We know this. That there's a sense in which these two young people will grow a bunch in this experience, probably in ways that they never would have otherwise. Right? I was hoping so much the doctors would be wrong. Because, see, they told, they told them months ago the baby would not survive for more than a few days at the very most. But I kept praying for a miracle. I kept praying that baby would be perfect. And let me tell you, if you see the pictures of the baby, the baby looks very perfect. Pray for him. I want you to understand something. You know, sometimes you go to funerals, and sometimes I've been, I, I'm, I'm assuming that I've had these thoughts. Maybe some of you are more pristine than me, and you've never thought about it. And, and, and it's like this. Every time you go to someone's funeral, they become a saint. I mean, I sat in funerals, and I'm wondering if the person they're talking about is the person I knew, because they don't even sound like the same person at all. You ever have that experience? We understand this, that sometimes being confronted with death makes people see things a lot differently than they would have otherwise. Eliza's not being melodramatic here. He's grieving deeply. But you see, even though Elijah was really a true spiritual father to Elisha, Elisha has a greater father who trumps even Elijah. His God, his father. And let me tell you, Elisha doesn't, he, 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 moan, he groans, he moans, he mourns, but he doesn't let it hold him back. He's going to pick up right where Elijah left off in a matter of the blink of an eye. This is not something that's going to go on for day after day after day after day. It's time for him to step up the plate, and he does exactly that. Now, let me just say this, too. We, Elijah knows this. He knows because we wonder. We wonder when so-and-so passes, did, you know, did, they, did they make it to heaven? You've, you've known people like that. You've known people who are not believers, and at their funeral, you're thinking, what's become of them? The neat thing for Elijah is this. He has no doubt where Elijah is. He's in heaven because he saw him go there. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Ah! We talked last week about how Elijah really didn't have much of an inheritance to leave to his spiritual son Elisha, right? As far as physical things go. But here we have an example of him leaving maybe his only material possession that he has left to Elisha. His mantle. 
his cloak. Probably the very same one that he threw over him in that field that day was probably many years before that. Now we understand where that that phrase, the passing of the mantle, comes from, right? The mantle has now passed. It's passed from Elijah to Elisha. And we've considered this somewhat through our conversation, and that is, That when a leader departs, if their work is to continue after them, then there has to be someone who steps in the leadership role in their place. It happens with every human institution. You know, there are churches that sometimes only go through one generation. The founding person is there, church planner, whatever you want to call them. They plant the church. It makes it through their lifetime maybe. Uh, but sometimes they fold at the end of that. Is that what we want for Springs? It's not what I want for Springs. One of the things I see my role as, as I'm getting older here, is to prepare for the transition. And it's coming. It'll be here sometime. Who knows when? Uh, that's what leadership's about, guys what church leadership's about it's not about being popular it's not about being loved by everybody and people thinking you're just the greatest person that ever walked on the earth and those kinds of things it's being faithful to the gospel and being concerned about what happens after you leave just as elijah was I mean, do you think that, uh, that he didn't spend lots of hours walking and talking with Elisha and, and purposely doing all kinds of things to intentionally to help him, to help prepare him for what was coming? I would imagine as the years have gone by, and I would imagine it was years that they were together, that in more recent times the focus for, of Elijah was more and more on preparing Elisha. We see this. This, this example, you know, in the Scripture, time and time and time again. Think about Jesus and those 12 guys. Now, we know that Judas fell away, and we know that Jesus knew all along that he was going to do that. It was never a secret to him. But he spent three years training Peter and James and John and Andrew and the other guys. Yes, he was out teaching to other people. And yes, he was out healing people. And yes, he was feeding 5,000 to 4,000 in common to see and all those kinds of things. But one of his primary focuses, guys, was on those, three, those, those, those men to prepare them to pick up the mantle and carry it after he left. He even commissioned them. Immediately before he ascended into heaven... He said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the world. And you know how what happened is they actually did that. That some of those guys died in Africa, one of them died in India, and so on and so on, sharing the gospel. And they all died except John the Apostle. Because they were telling people about Jesus. Paul did this very same thing. 
mean, why do you think, by the way, we're going to 1 Timothy next week. But why in the world do you think Paul wrote this, this letter of 1 Timothy? And why in the world is it addressed to Timothy? Well, if you read it, you'd find out it's the same thing we're talking about here. There was a teaching tool that Paul, could Paul be in lots of different places at the same time? No, and sometimes he was thousands of miles away from some of his disciples. So how in the world did he continue to teach them and to encourage them and strengthen them and prepare them? He did it through letters. And we have some of those letters in the Bible. But let me tell you something. We probably have only a fraction of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to all the people that he discipled. Verse 14, then he took the mantle of Elijah that, that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he also struck or smote, remember that from the King James Version Bible, the waters, they divided from here to there, and Elijah crossed over. Wow. Just remember that when Elijah had asked him what he wanted, when he departed, he asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Now I want you to know something. I didn't bring this to, to bear before, and that is as far as the, the, the mantle, you, know, you need to understand something. It's not that this mantle just kind of fell away from Elijah. He didn't, wasn't aware of it or anything like that. But when you look at the text, what you really glean from it is this. Is, it, it is, there was, a real, there was a, an intentional Thing that Elijah did to pass his cloak to Elisha. It wasn't that he just, you know, was carried off and the breeze caught it and, you know, and it fluttered down to earth. But really you get the idea that it was almost as if Elijah handed it to him, cast it to him. He asked for that double portion of Elijah's spirit. Now, we have stories. I had thought at one time about just continuing on with the series and, you know, going into the life of Elisha because there's as much in the Bible, maybe more in the Bible, about Elisha than there is Elijah. There are actually more miracles that were accomplished by Elisha listed or given in the Scripture than there is Elijah. So was this mantle some kind of a magic mantle had the power to divide waters if you just struck the water with it? Is that what's going on here? No. I mean, there's a sense in what is going on here is Elijah's checking to see if he's gotten that double portion of Elijah's spirit. That's why he does what he does. It's in a sense, it's a test. He's testing himself. He's testing himself to see what has happened. We understand this, the parting of Red Seas and things like that, even though people try to come up with all kinds of explanations of it 
and that sort of thing, that those things are God things, that, that people can't do those. There's no one on the face of the earth that's ever been able to, to, to buy their own power, to divide the Red Sea. There's no piece of garb, there's no garment that has some natural uh, or, or, or magical capabilities to do anything like that either. We understand that. That when we see things like this, we classify them as miracles, and miracles are things that are God's things. They're things that, that, that God's the only explanation for. And let me just say this this morning, I've said this before, and that is that if you're looking around for a miracle, you look at yourself. You don't have to look any further than yourself. To be a living, breathing being made from the dust of the ground and have the quality of life is a miracle. But even more than that, to be a believer means that God has already begun to work in you. And if he doesn't do that, then you never make it. He's the one who always initiates things, always. And that's because he's the only one who has the power to do that. People can't do it. If I were to ask you who saved you, what would you say? I hope you would say Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. But there are some people who believe they can save themselves. You can't. No one ever has. You know something? No one's ever come even close to doing it. Ever. We all need Jesus as much of Jesus as we can have of Jesus. Now, let me just say some other things. And one of those is this is... Yes, God apparently is done with Elijah, you know, as far as his work on earth comes at that time, but that's not the end of it for him. We know some things. We know that on uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus took James and, and John and Peter to the top of that mountain, and we don't know what mountain it was, but we're told that they were tra- he was transfigured before them. And there were two people who appeared. One was Moses, and the other was Elijah. And they were talking to him, and they were encouraging him. Because you need to understand that this is not very far uh, down the road before he has his great trials and his crucifixion and all of that. You ever, never feel, do you ever feel like you need to be encouraged? You ever just wish somebody would just encourage you? You need to understand that Jesus had times like that, and one of the reasons that the two of them were there were to encourage him about what was about to take place. If Jesus needed it, do you think it's okay for us to need it? So we have the Mount of Transfiguration, but if we look all the way back in the book of Revelation in chapter 11, there is uh, some conversation there about... Two witnesses, and this is how it describes those two witnesses. These have the power to shut up the sky. Oh, my goodness, didn't Elijah shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall? Sounds a lot like Elijah. They also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. That sounds a whole lot like Moses. Again, I'll have all the answers, but there's there's a chance that God still is not through with Elijah on earth. You know how the Old Testament ends? Let me tell you, if you don't, you need to. 
It's a question we always ask seminary students, and 90% of them don't have a clue. And I would think that that would be one of the most important things that you would consider. I mean, what, what good is, what good is uh, most books if, if you just have the beginning and you never consider what the end of it is? I mean, there are some people who, who, who will go to the end of the book and they read the ending before they read it just to figure out if they really want to read it or not. But I'm not like that, and I would imagine most of you are not like that at all now. But what I'm telling you is you need to know the ending of the book. Because there's a promise made there. And the promise is this, that God is going to send forth who again? Elijah again. And we understand this, that sometimes we want to take Bible prophecy literally, and sometimes it's intended to be taken literally, and sometimes it's not, because we know that Jesus identifies John the Baptist as being the fulfillment of that promise. So what else do we know about these two prophets? We know that one day they both will return to the earth when Jesus comes. And I would imagine these two are going to be hot on his heels, close to the front of the mass of spirits coming. There's going to be a difference. Elijah's coming not only in spirit but in body. Just remember, the only two people in the whole Bible that, that, are, that were told did not die eventually. Their body did not die. One was Enoch and the other was Elisha. Elisha will come too. Because if you read, read on in, uh, into 2 Kings, we have, the, we have the, the works and the ministry of Elisha. And on the end of it, is he... Does he does, God sent down a chariot of fire and pick him up and take him to heaven? No, he dies. His body dies. And there's an interesting story, and that is that after he was dead, that they took a, a dead body and threw it into his grave, and it sprung back to life. Isn't that pretty cool? But Elisha will come too, but it will be his spirit. And when, he, when they, they get here, then Elisha's body will be resurrected from the dead and be reunited with his spirit for the first time since his death. It would be kind of cool to be Elijah. I don't know about you guys, but death is not always the most appealing thing to me. Sometimes it sounds like you know, that might be a better alternative than some of the stuff you have to put up with. You're probably going to hear about this, so I guess maybe I should address it. This might be the best place. Most of you have been around here very long. You know that I have heart issues, right? Uh, And one of those is arrhythmia. And the doctors have medicated me for it for a long time. 
And, and I did so well that eventually my doctor took me off of one of the primary medications I was on, and for, for a while, no issues at all. About a, about, a, about a month ago, I started having arrhythmia problems again. And I put it off because they would last just a few minutes and they would be over. I had one right in front of Riley and Nancy, and they didn't even know it. I w- I'm very good at putting up front so people can't tell what's going on, just like Julie is sometimes. You know what I'm talking about. But Friday, guys, I came as close to dying as I ever have because of that stinging arrhythmia. My heart rate was 200 beats per minute for over an hour. And when you get to that point, (laughs) you wonder about things. I honestly believed Friday afternoon I was leaving here. And Lori wasn't with me. I was by myself. Managed to get to the emergency room and (laughs) scared the bejeebies out of three old women that were in the parking lot because I couldn't make it in. (laughs) And I was trying to get them to go get somebody to come help me. But anyway, we're all confronted with that kind of stuff. Every single one of us, right? But there's comfort even in those trials. Not all answered questions and things like that, but let me just tell you, there was just this kind of this peace and comfort that came over me. Let me tell you, I was on that bed with six or eight people around me waiting for the code blue. Seriously. And what happened was they started giving me the medication. As soon as they did, my heart rate just went... So why am I telling you all this? So you'll know that we all have the same things. Because let me tell you something. When When you're confronted with things like that, you have the same thoughts. My first thought is her. What's going to become of her? What's going to become of my children, my grandchildren? What's going to become of the church? You know, so on and so on. There's all this kind of stuff going through your head. But let me tell you, there's nothing more important than you being ready to go when the Lord calls you. And let me tell you, I was ready to go if it was my time. And I know ultimately that he will take care of her, and he will take care of Matthew, and he will take care of Stephen, and he will take care of Lindsay, and he will take care of Caroline, and all of our grandkids, and everybody else. But there's only one way to have that kind of peace. There's only one way. And that is through Jesus. So let me tell you, I want to plead with every one of you this morning. I don't know where you are in regard to him, but let me tell you, there's nothing more important that you could possibly do for yourself and for your loved ones. And that is to get yourself right with God, and there's only one way to do it. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ, who is indeed the the King of kings, the Lord of lords the only Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.